The Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Listen for the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who, belonged, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. So the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water to cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in the flames. But Abraham said, child, remember, during your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed so that no one who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. He said, well then, Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. After Children's Minute, a few years back, there was a Sunday school teacher after the early service. She was telling this story about the rich man and Lazarus. And she said, you know, Lazarus was outside the gate. The rich man was inside the house and the gate. And Lazarus uh, was covered with sores and begged for food. And that the rich man just passed by Lazarus every day, stepping over him, walking past him. Uh, but when they died, Lazarus went to heaven while the rich man found himself in, in Hades. In hell, she said, which she described most graphically. And the boys all loved that. When she had finished, she said, now, which one would you rather be, the rich man or Lazarus? And one little fellow said, well, I want to be the rich man until I die, and then I want to be Lazarus afterwards, <laughs> you know. We want it both ways, don't we, as children, as adults, too. I have wrestled with this parable. I, I've wrestled with this entire series on kingdom accounting, the type things, the type people God keeps up with, and the way that God's economy is so much different from our economy, the way that a dishonest manager was rewarded last week. And then I, we get to this parable, and it's done a number on me too. And I've thought, you know, if we reduce it to a devotional of some sort, that it's, it's pretty simple to just sort of gloss over the whole meaning I think it was Hemingway that talked about the iceberg effect in any great novel that you see a little bit on the top, but you have to get underneath to see what it is that you actually are able to see on top. And so on the surface, it seems like rich equals bad and poor equals good. But like so many parables and great stories, there's much more below the surface. There's a lot of scholarship that indicates that Jesus and the other rabbis inherited this story from ancient Egypt, from other 
periods of time in that part of the world. Some say there's seven or eight stories like this that they would have inherited. And by that, I mean it's two stories within the same story, the world of the present day, the world of the afterlife, those two things being connected by death itself. But what's interesting is uh, Luke includes this, this parable in a different way. He casts it in a different light. Jesus tells it for that reason, for that purpose. And what he does is he puts it squarely before a specific group of people, the Pharisees, those who uphold the law, who don't miss a single letter of the law, those who believe God has blessed them with good favor and lavish wealth and is therefore punishing those who are poor in their poverty and through their hunger because of sinfulness. But the iceberg, that which is below the surface, is so much larger and the water so much deeper. Luke nor Jesus tell us anything about the character of these two men was the rich man really all that upright and moral and good that his riches came to him? Was Lazarus or his father before him or grandfather before him so amoral or immoral that he deserved his plight? We don't know much more than what we are given. And so we could go into this theology that says rich means you go to heaven, poor means you go to hell, or that you flip it and it's all the opposite as it is in the parable, the part that's challenging for the rich being equated with, with bad, though, there's a problem with that because we look at people like Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia, who also dealt in fine purple cloth. All of those were very devoted followers of Jesus. Even Abraham himself kept covenant, and he was extremely wealthy. The flip side of, of kind of the shallow theology there is that the poor and hungry people around this community and communities all across the world, we, we easily say, well, they have what's coming to them. Who are we to intervene with what God is trying to teach them? You know, there's a problem with that. It doesn't square. What these men do share in common is that they are seen by God before whom all secrets are disclosed. So this parable is placed directly in front of the Pharisees, those who espoused a rigorous adherence to the law, but there's a problem. There's tension. Something is about to shake in the ground because the same law they claim secures their wealth as a blessing from God. It also repeatedly mandates that God's people take care of the widows and the orphans and the poor, and the transient, and all of Deuteronomy, you hear that. In Leviticus, the law is set up for that very purpose. Wealth might equal God's blessing, but God's blessing requires one to bless others. So what we begin to see is a biblical pattern, and we students of the Bible, you included, we look for biblical patterns because in those moments of patterns, we, we tend to find truth and maybe what the Holy Spirit is trying to convey to us. For example, we read in, in Isaiah about mountains that are going to come down and valleys that will be raised up and crooked places straight, and when there's equal footing, rich, poor, all demarcations will see salvation together. We read that. We read, though, from the same prophet who quotes Yahweh as saying, Is not the fast I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to untie the thongs of slavery, to give bread to the hungry, to bring hungry homeless into one's home, 
And when one is naked, we clothe them. That's the same prophet saying, how are we caring for the needy among us? And so I wonder if that's why Abraham told the rich man, everything that you need for right now, for today, you have, you possess in the law and the prophets. That would be the equivalent of saying, you have your Bible. You have your scripture. It has authority in your life, or either it doesn't. So what he's saying is, you have the scriptures now. You know know what God requires of, of you now. See one another. Hear one another. See others, hear, uh, play some I spy as adults who have the means by which to make a difference in someone's life. We see it in the Sermon on the Plain. Jesus talks about the disparity between the rich and the poor. In Acts, after the Pentecost event, the church is finally formed and said, hold all things in common so that no one among you has any needs. And we see the consequences when someone withholds either their presence, their prayers, their gifts, we call them our vows of membership. In the Magnificat, something remarkable happens. Just a few chapters earlier, Mary uh, sings a song. It's quite appropriate for worship and music arts dedication. Mary sings a song, my soul magnifies the Lord. He's cast down the mighty, he's raised up the lowly, he's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. We see a pattern forming, reversals, and surprises, the mighty coming down, the lowly being raised up, voices that are loud in this world or silence, voices that can't be heard, will be heard. There's coming a day. You're so blessed that you will bless others. But in order to bless others, we have to see others and we have to hear others. In order to be a blessing to others, to keep in that covenantal vow, we have to see one another and listen to one another and hear one another. So this parable presents this moral dilemma for seeing the unseen and hearing the voices and helping people who cannot help themselves. It, it does something in a frame. It places wealth and poverty in the same space. It places scarcity and abundance right there in that same frame. But there are no generalities here, just two men in the same frame, one wealthy with the resources to help the other, the other who has no power except to just look up and say, just one crumb, just one crumb, just one bandage. Reversals and surprises. That's a masterful contribution that Luke captures from the lips of Jesus. That's what it means to be in the life of Jesus. I read a story, uh, maybe you've heard it. There was a bank in Binghamton, New York, and uh, it, that bank had some flowers sent to a competitor who had just purchased a new building and wanted to just welcome and send some uh, hospitality. But there was a mix-up in the flower shop, and the card uh, that was sent from one bank to the other bank said, with our deepest sympathy. The florist, who was quite embarrassed and apologized, became even more apologetic and embarrassed when he realized that the card that was supposed to go from one bank to the other bank had actually gone to a funeral home in honor of a deceased person, and that card said, congratulations on your new location, (laughs) right? (laughs) Stories of reversals and surprises. The rich 
in this story become poor, the poor become rich, the rich man is not named, the poor man, Lazarus, is named, the rich man has fine purple clothes on, the, the poor man has tattered clothes and dogs licking his oozing sores, the rich man stands uprightly and has a perspective and can see everyone if he chooses. Poor Lazarus is just there, waiting on someone to see him. The rich man feasts sumptuously. Lazarus scrapes for scraps. What does it all mean? What impact does this type of parable, as shocking as it is, what impact does it have on, on a single life or on a family or on a congregation? What kind of response does it elicit? Do we dismiss it? Do we become apathetic, indifferent? What kind of parable would make a man with three doctoral degrees, one in medicine, one in theology, one in philosophy, one who was a very accomplished concert organist, what would make that type of person who, who had this opportunity to study and to teach at Vienna, Austria, to go and into the darkest, deepest, remotest parts of, of Africa to minister to those groups? The man I'm talking about, of course, is Dr. Albert Schweitzer. And the parable that changed his life, that said, that's not wealth. Wealth is following where the Spirit is. The parable that changed his life was the rich man and Lazarus. We all love a good story of reversals. Any Freaky Friday fans in here? Mine was Big, the movie Big. You remember the movie Big, Tom Hanks, growing up as one of his early movies? Great movie, story of reversal. Undercover boss, trading spaces. We love a story with reversals and surprises. But what's interesting here, we get back to the iceberg thing, it's abundantly clear of these reversals between the rich man and Lazarus, but it's a parable and the rug, the trap door is about to come out from under us because the first surprise of this parable is Father Abraham, who had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. They're probably singing about it at Children's Church right now. Abraham was extremely wealthy. The story is told directly to his ancestors, the priests, the Pharisees, those in his line, in his lineage of his, of his offspring. The stars are many, the sands are many. These are his people. Clearly, it's a blessing from God, Abrahamic wealth is. And so the question that's generated here is, why is Abraham in this story lobbying on behalf of a poor man named Lazarus? That would have been the first indication that Jesus is about to go to Medlin. <laughs> I imagine the hearers were a little bit confounded. But what Jesus is getting at is that wealth is only wealth when it's shared within the community. Wealth is only wealth when it's shared with the community. Otherwise, it becomes greed. There's an ancient Jewish tradition that says Abraham built an exquisite mansion, but he didn't use the mansion solely for himself or, or for his families. There were no gates outside, uh, outside of which that uh, the poor and the impoverished could, could sit and beg. Uh, the gates were wide open. There was no barricade. There, the doors were open. And on the inside, there wasn't an admission card or some checklist test to pass. Uh, he always had the best food, the finest food, the finest linens, the finest drink prepared for transients. 
and for those who were hungry. And so the impoverished feasted at Abraham's table. But when they, when they came and they thanked him and said, thank you for your hospitality. If you remember the story from Genesis 18, you know this is true. He sat outside waiting. The three strangers came. He, he gave them a cake. He gave them some water, some rest, and he allowed them um, all the hospitality that they were due. And in each of the cases with this Abraham's, Abrahamic version of radical hospitality, he always says, this isn't about me. Everything that I've shared with you belongs to God anyway. It's just my role to give back a little to you as keeping of the covenant. Because you remember the covenant with Abraham, I will bless you so that you will bless others. Not so you will feast sumptuously. Not so that you will be blind and deaf to those around you. The problem uh, with the rich man in the parable today is it's not his wealth. The problem is, is one of sight. It's one of sound. He never sees nor hears Lazarus, and he therefore never uses his wealth to make a difference in Lazarus's life. He, the rich man doesn't continue the covenantal vow to be generous like Father Abraham. He turns his back in doing so on his community and on those whom he's commanded to serve. Because to the rich man, Lazarus is less than human. He's probably, in his mind, getting what he deserves. He's, he's a pestilence outside my door, just a, a nuisance. It won't go, to, go away. You know, he's always holding up a sign. Lazarus has no identity to the rich man at all. Something else is peculiar is that even after death, the rich man thinks he can use Lazarus as a disposable commodity. A little errand boy. Hey, just send Lazarus to tell my brothers. Just a little dip of water. Send him to my brothers with a, with a message. Just use Lazarus like I, you know, I didn't even use him in this world. But now if he could just do the favor for me. But after death, Lazarus is a recipient of Abraham's generosity and is now at a different kind of table, feasting. It never occurs to the rich man that Lazarus is a child of Abraham and therefore a brother to the rich man. Uh, one article on this text says that the rich man has stolen Lazarus's birthright to food and to water, to shelter. Mm. Had it occurred to him in this world that the law, the prophets, we would add the community of faith were all that we need to care for one another, to know what the kingdom of God looks like, and we would have leaned into the authority of Scripture. The second surprising reversal is Jesus himself. Because Jesus will eventually become the living parable. This unassuming carpenter's son born in a feeding trough in the middle of, of nowhere, a homeless traveler, but a miracle worker, someone the world would miss by refusing to see the goodness of God's grace. Reversals and surprises. I want you to ask yourself a question about your own faith, your own relationship with God, your own relationship with the community. Because this is what grace does to us. It makes us ask questions. In what areas does life need some surprising reversals right now? To be undone so that God can redo. 
What is it that's binding us more than we realize, preventing us from, from seeing or from hearing not only the needs of others, but preventing us from even getting up and being a part of the community because there was a reversal, a change that needed to happen in both lives. Some change in status, identifying marker that needed to be undone and then redone. So I thought about the things that bind us and if willing could be yielded to grace by faith and reversed and surprised and used for something greater. I thought about what we do with our anger because we say my anger is merited, but what anger does is it prevents us from seeing or hearing. I thought about, uh, you know, we say things like, my gossip is only because of, of their gossip. Okay, but you're hearing the wrong things. And I thought about things like shame. My shame is, is my problem. I'll just take care of that. No, 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 no. You're part of a family who cares for you. Or we th say things like, my pride is, is justified, you know, because somebody had to step up. Okay, but your pride might be preventing you from washing someone's feet. Reversals and surprises, what needs to be undone so that God can redo work in our lives? Grace has the power to reverse us here and now. It has the power to surprise us. There's a great book entitled Surprised by Grace, and there's a line in there that says, every time we sin, we're telling God that my way of navigating this particular situation is better than yours. My wisdom, my skills are more efficient and effective in this moment than your wisdom and skills. Every time we give in to anger, gossip, pride, backbiting, false assumptions, guess what? In that moment, the chasm has already started forming. You don't have to wait when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it'll be. We have some chasms to bridge here and now. Because you see, God is in the business of relentlessly pursuing rebels like you and me, not to angrily strip us from our freedom, but to affectionately strip us and to set us free from all that binds us. The gospel alone liberates you and me to live lives of scandalous generosity unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon valor, and unbounded courage. Reversals and surprises, they happen every day in a life, in a life that's willing to yield to the vision and the hearing of God Almighty. So when you're feeling unworthy and unsurprised, here's a list for you of people who have paved the way. Noah was a drunk. Abraham, they said, was too old. Isaac daydreamed too much. Jacob was a liar. Joseph was abused and sold into slavery. Moses was a, mur a murderer who had a stuttering problem. Gideon was petrified. He was so overcome by his fear. David, we all know about Bathsheba Gate. Isaiah preached without any clothes on. Jonah ran away from God. Job lost everything. Peter denied Jesus. Jesus built the church on him. Every single disciple fell asleep and fled and abandoned Jesus. But grace is in the business of reversing stories and surprising us with opportunities. 
to make a difference in this world. God uses people as signs. The rich man said, give me a sign, give them a sign. They've got the law and the prophets. They've got everything they need right now. If they can't see what God is trying to do through all of that and through the church and through the community, then even if someone rises from the dead, they're going to reject it. So God uses people as signs, you and me as signals that God is not done with this world yet, that God is unleashed trying to give us all an alternative story than the one that's holding us down, that God uses the church as a purveyor of generosity never to hoard or withhold because there's always a neighbor in need. There's a child who has a song in his or her heart and they need the support of the church. There's a youth who's trying to be equipped and trying to discern if they're actually hearing the call of God. There's a family that needs to be restored. The only sign we need that we're not where God wants us to be yet, but that God has not given up on us either, the only sign we need is one another. Look around. There's your sign. That God has not given up on the church, or on the world, or on people. Not yet. Not yet. The afterlife isn't the point of origin for chasms between us. For some reason, we break that ground here, and every time we fail to see one another, or to hear one another, or assume the worst about the one another, or gossip about one another, rip into one another, so much out there trying to tear the church apart, we don't have to help them any. We are called to act for others on behalf of others right now. That's our mission. That's our message. That's the waters from which we have been drawn in baptism. I heard a story about a beautiful lake that lost its freshness, the water used to be crystal clear one of those like in Florida you can see the bottom of it and all of a sudden it got gooey and gummy and slimy and all this stuff and when that happened all the animals people liked stopped gumming and farm animals became ill and finally somebody came by the lake who understood the problem and what was happening is debris was collecting from the hard spring rains that had stopped up the dam not to prevent water from coming in, but to prevent water from going out. And once the spillway was cleared, it didn't take long before the lake was fresh and clean as crystal. The flow in and the flow out were both necessary to keep the lake pure. The blessings of life that flow to you and me, they come daily, but we fail to realize that most of these blessings are not meant to flow only to us, but to others through us, for the good of others around us. Maybe one of the best blessings we can give to one another is playing a good old-fashioned game of I spy. See one another, friends. Hear one another. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, even as Christ has forgiven you. That's true wealth. That carries with us 
Glory be to God. Amen.